Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Make no mistake, there are substantive and wide-ranging changes underway at the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. They have to do with how crimes and cases of police misconduct are investigating and what kinds of crimes are and are not prosecuted. It's all what State's Attorney Kim Fox promised to do, and we'll talk with her about the job and the mission this week. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is Addish. My guest is Kimberly Fox, the state's attorney for Cook County. She's running the second largest prosecutor's office in the country, and she is the first African-American woman to do so. She took office last December after a tough election in which she ousted the first woman and first Latina to hold the office, Anita Alvarez. Kim Fox had a history that became well-known during the campaign. Growing up in the Cabrini-Green CHA complex, her life experiences made her want to improve the lives of people who grew up like her. She spent 12 years working in the state's attorney's office. She would become county board president Tony Preckwinkle's chief of staff, and she would leave that job to pursue this one. Kim Fox, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be back, Craig. Well, we have a lot to talk about in this half hour, but we really need to start with the week's big story, uh, and that is that the Illinois General Assembly, after more than two years of stalemate, approved the state's first full budget since Governor Bruce Rauner was elected, and it was over his veto. Uh, Your office's budget comes from the uh, county board, not the state, so how has the standoff in Springfield affected your operations? It has had a, a, a tremendous effect on our office, not just from a budgetary standpoint, uh, but the resources that would be allocated to some of the non-for-profits that work in the space uh, that we deal with. So uh, community-based organizations that deal with violence reduction, after-school programming, um, and the like, uh, have a real impact on violence in the neighborhoods that we see. And so the budget impacts uh, that have affected them, their ability to serve as many clients um, as they need to serve, have had an indirect impact on our office. And then more broadly, you know, we, there are some grants that we get from uh, the state uh, that have also been caught up in the budget uh, mess. And so hopefully but we'll see a direct response to that and also the indirect uh, response of having those community-based organizations get the funding that they need. Um, how soon will you see any difference in what has been and what will be? You know, it's early to tell. Uh, I think we're, you know, fresh off of the override, having gone through. Um, The hope is sooner than later. I mean, really, it has been uh, devastating to not have had a budget for the last two years. And those organizations that we count on to do some of the community-based work um, who have had to let people off have to now reboot and start up again and the recruitment that it takes to get some of the people engaged in this type of work is also going to take some time. So one would hope for an immediate uh, impact, but it's hard to say. Mm. Um, let's bring this a little closer to home, at least uh, as far as budgetary issues are concerned. Uh, one of our stories as we were ending the week was that the uh, Cook County Sheriff's Office had been warned 
that there were going to have to be hundreds of layoffs if the sweetened beverage tax uh, is either uh, held off for a long time or killed. Uh, That was making news. But we didn't hear about whether there were warnings issued to any other offices that deal with public safety like yours. Did you get a warning like that? I did, in fact, get a warning like that. I think all of the county agencies got uh, the same warning uh, that as a result of the Sweden Beverage Tax temporary restraining order that the budget uh, projections for this fiscal year needed to change dramatically. We were asked to do a 10 percent reduction in our workforce. And what does that mean in terms of personnel? Uh, The request that we received was for um, over 100 uh, assistant state's attorneys and dozens of administrative staff. So we're looking at the the request that was given to us was somewhere near 170. What would that do to the actual prosecution uh, and investigation of crime? Certainly uh, budget impacts and a reduction in force uh, will make our jobs even tougher. Um, We are already working on limited means. But at this point, we are working with our uh, chief financial officer and our budget team uh, to work with the county uh, to, one, mitigate the impact that this would have, uh, to be able to work with them to see if there are things that we can do um, creatively to ensure that public safety is not jeopardized. Uh, but certainly, this if if that were the full effect, it, it would have a tremendous effect on, on, on how we do our jobs. Hmm. Well, we will uh, obviously be watching that. Uh, but some things actually did get done in the legislature this, uh, this season. The Bail Reform Act was uh, passed and signed into law, and that was uh, something that you had a great interest in and has a lot to do with... Uh, the longstanding problem of overcrowding at the county jail, but also, I gather, uh, or I know, a matter of fairness. Certainly. I, I think the issue of bail has been something that I've paid attention to for the last several years. Uh, as you noted, when I worked as the chief of staff of the, the county board president, one of the big items on our budget portfolio is the jail. And back when I started working for the president's office in 2013, the jail population was hovering somewhere around 10,500 people. We'd been under a consent decree from the federal courts for uh, decades. And we were doing a deep deep dive of who was in our jails and why. And what we discovered was that there was a significant population of people who were there, um, not because they were a threat to the public, uh, but because they could not afford their bonds. And there was there's a there's a fairness aspect to it. Most people don't realize that the jail is the place people go awaiting trial. Uh, The difference between jail and prison, prison is where you go to serve a sentence. Jail is where we hold people who have not yet been tried for their crimes. And that presumption of innocence remains with them until they are found guilty. And what we found, again, a lot of people were there for uh, offenses that, again, are criminal, but weren't the things that were keeping us up at night. It wasn't the violent criminals, the folks who were out killing and and maiming and raping and harming. Um, It was the overwhelming majority were there for nonviolent offenses. And when we looked at why were they still there, a significant portion were there because they could not afford their bonds. And so from my standpoint, when I became state's attorney, I wanted to continue to look at that, one, because we have such limited resources and public safety um, is our paramount concern. 
I want to make sure that the people who are in our jails are people who belong there, who pose a threat to the public, and that those who are there because of their inability to pay um, and the consequences that come from that, whether it's the cost. We had someone in our jail for $300, uh, stealing $300 worth of shoes. Uh, it cost the county about $160 a day to hold that person. Um, and he had been sitting in jail for three months, um, still waiting for his trial. We're, we're paying for that. And there seems to be a better way to use our resources and, quite frankly, for this person, if he is working, going to school as a family, uh, to deal with waiting for this before trial outside of the jail system. And at the same time, uh, we would see people who were charged with horrible offenses have the financial means to get out. Um, dangerous people charged with everything from gun possession to first-degree murder who had the ability to pay to get out. So it was important to us as, as, as guardians of the public safety and the state's attorney's office to make sure that we had the right people in the jails for the right reason um, and that the system was fair. Now, this uh, Bail Reform Act, among other things, it seems to set standards for when somebody should be held in, in jail pending trial. Um, at least that's that's my reading of it. How do you ensure that those standards are evenly applied from courtroom to courtroom? That's the challenge. I mean, I think what we've been trying to do is, one, collect data uh, to make sure that, again, that our system of justice isn't dependent on what judge that you get. Uh, it, it should not be kind of the luck of the draw in terms of what justice looks like on any particular day. So we have been very mindful of, of having our office go and look and monitor what the uh, bail recommendations are or what the bail orders are across courtrooms. And also, we've been mindful to make sure that our assistant state's attorneys are trained on what the bond statute says uh, to make sure that they understand what the recommendations that we should be making are. One of the things that we as an office hadn't done was had prosecutors make bond recommendations in some of these lower level offenses. And there's an obligation that we have to do that. So we've been doing extensive training over the last several months with our attorneys who are in bond court to make sure that they're meeting their obligations as well. Um, people seem to be taking a look at the whole issue of cash bond. Um, what, what's your office doing about that? So we have been very vocal about the issue of cash bond. You're right. It's not just a Cook County thing. It, it, it's a national conversation that's being had uh, because we've seen numerous examples across the country of people's inability to pay um, bonds and what has happened to them as they matriculate through the system. Um, there are concerns, particularly for poor people, um, who can't pay their bonds, pleading guilty to crimes that they didn't commit in an effort to get out of jail. Again, as, as a gatekeeper of the criminal justice system, we certainly want those people who have done harm to be accountable, but we also don't want to have people plead guilty for crimes for which they didn't commit. Uh, we've seen instances, uh, for example, the Khalif Browder case out of uh, Rikers in New York, you know, a young man who sat in prison or jail, I'm sorry, in Rikers for three years, uh, on a stealing a backpack charge, and that case was ultimately dismissed. Uh, but the treatment that he received there um, led to his suicide a year after he'd gotten out of jail. We've seen instances where mothers are separated from um, children, we or people have lost their jobs. I mean, the, what is the long-term impact of the decisions that we make on bond court 
to the health, safety, and welfare of communities. And I think that conversation is happening across the country. Um, I want to talk about some other decisions that are being made in your office. You're, you've uh, announced that the state's attorney's office will stop prosecuting some cases, like some traffic offenses and, and things like that. Um, can you explain what what crimes, as, <laughs> as people would generally call them, are, are not going to be uh, tried? You know, it goes back to what we talked about at the start of the interview. We have very limited resources in the state's attorney's office, uh, and not just as a result of the recent um, budget challenges by the county, but over the course of the last several years, uh, the, the staffing ratios at the, our office have shrunk. And as the second largest prosecutor's office in the country, I cannot under underplay uh, the enormous task that we have. Cook County is the second largest uh, county in the country of 5.4 million people. And I have an office of, you know, just under 800 attorneys. And we do everything from defend the county in lawsuits, for example, uh, the beverage tax suit. We, we are the <laughs> county's attorney um, to civil rights cases that arise out of the jail to if someone gets hurt on a county road. So we have a, a civil unit. We deal with um, hundreds of thousands of misdemeanor cases a year, as well as um, tens of thousands of felony cases. And the enormity of our work requires us to allocate our resources um, to where the need is the most. And right now, when we look at what's happening, uh, particularly in the city of Chicago, with violent crime, we need to make sure that we're putting all of our resources to deal with that which then means that we have to look at our priorities uh, and how we expend our resources and, and our most valuable resources, quite frankly, are our attorneys. Um, we are largely, uh, our budget is human. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in doing so, in making sure that we are prioritizing violent crime uh, and those things that keep our communities safe, what we've done is not said that we're not prosecuting certain crimes. What we're saying is we're reallocating resources. So on the issue as it related to some of the traffic offenses, we have attorneys who are manned in traffic uh, court cases that are basically uh, processors for debt collection. And certainly people should be held accountable. You should, if you get a ticket, you should pay it. Uh, That is what is the responsible thing to do. Um, And we are not saying that that can't happen. What we're asking is for the shared uh, of the load by some of the smaller municipalities who we see a lot of this in the suburbs to help us prosecute these cases. It doesn't have to be the state's attorney's office that does it. Uh, local uh, municipalities can do this. Uh, they have city lawyers or suburban lawyers in those districts who can prosecute these cases because right now we are strained. And so it's not to say that there are any cases that we won't prosecute. It's we're being very judicious in our resources um, and trying to find ways and avenues uh, to do our jobs with limited resources. Do the municipalities have the the resources to do these prosecutions themselves? I suspect that they've pretty much gotten used to the fact yeah. that the state's attorney's office does that. And we're in conversations with those municipalities because you're right, Craig. We, we have done these cases historically for years, and asking them to take on this new responsibility is certainly um, a challenge, particularly one that they hadn't anticipated. Uh, so that rollout, you know, you know, we started making the rounds with the suburban municipalities and police chiefs uh, a couple of weeks ago, and, and we are anticipating doing this sometime in August to get them an opportunity to get ready for these cases. 
You're listening to News Radio's At Issue. I'm political editor Craig Delamore. My guest is Cook County State's Attorney Kimberly Fox. And I want to follow up on that because, uh, uh, as you might imagine, we have actually heard from some of the uh, <laughs> <laughs> some of the yeah. police officials in those uh, municipalities yeah. who were none too pleased to hear about the mm-hmm. the new order of things. Um, one of them uh, I suspect you're familiar with is uh, the outspoken police chief of Riverside, Tom Weitzel, yes. uh, who calls this a political move and says this is criminal justice dismantlement. Um, first off, he suggests that felony retail theft is also something that's falling under this. A, is that true? And B, how do you respond just to the concept that this is pulling away from prosecutions for political purposes? You know, I think, again, what I would say to to the chief, and I actually have said to the chief, is if you look at what's happening in Cook County right now with violent crime, um, the statistics are horrifying. I personally um, have been affected by the gun violence that we've seen. Um, a judge uh, that I knew, respected, and admired and worked in front of was murdered. Uh, a college friend of mine's um, son was murdered uh, a month ago. Uh, a colleague of mine's son was shot last week. We have an issue of violence um, in our county right now that we need to deal with. And my concern truly is making sure that we have our resources to deal with that. Um, I'm not in any way suggesting uh, that we are not concerned about, you know, people who are driving on suspended driver's license or issues with related to retail theft. But we have limited resources. And when I have to look at the priorities uh, that are facing our office and the challenges that are facing our county, I have to add, allocate those resources accordingly. It's not, it is not an easy task uh, to do this job um, and see the faces of crime victims um, and the families of those who are, you know, family of defendants and look at the horrible violence that is plaguing our neighborhoods. Uh, it is not easy uh, to, to turn on the news and see 102 shootings in the city of Chicago in one weekend. And I have to make sure that we have all of our hands on deck to do that. And that means making difficult decisions and tough choices about how we attack the violence in our neighborhoods. Uh, As it relates to our retail theft policy, what we saw was when we looked at our neighbors uh, in Indiana, they had a higher retail theft threshold than we do here in Illinois. Um, when we looked to Wisconsin, they also had a higher retail theft threshold. What we were seeing was we had a lot of people who were getting uh, arrested in, in felony convictions for these retail thefts of $300 who were struggling with a myriad of issues. It wasn't just that they were stealing. They also had drug addiction issues. We had a population that had mental health issues. We have a population that has drug addiction and mental health issues. We have a homeless population that we find getting caught up in these cases. And the prosecuting of these cases are relatively easy. You bring someone in, they come in, they say, I saw them take it. Um, And the outcomes, particularly for a lot of these people, if we don't get them in the proper services, means we're going to see them again. And so I'm I'm sensitive and aware of the concerns that our partners in law enforcement have um, and certainly want to work with them to make sure that we're providing the resources necessary to stop people from committing crimes 
uh, but we have to be realistic in the allocation of our dollars and where our priorities are. So as far as retail theft is concerned, it simply means that you're raising the amount of money uh, that has to be... Uh, for a felony. Yes, so, for a felony. Yes, so people uh, can be charged with misdemeanor retail theft um, for anything less than $1,000. And in certain circumstances, of if it's less than $1,000, uh, we will also charge felony charges. We will look at those cases. We're not saying summarily no case will ever... Like somebody has a gun or something. Yeah, like we that. will absolutely look at those cases. Um, but what we're saying is, you know, raising the threshold to be in line with our neighbors. Um, in line, in fact, we're less than what the governor, uh, Governor Rauner and his uh, commission uh, is recommending. They were recommending raising the threshold to $2,000. Again, with the recognition that we were outliers in the state of Illinois with our with our neighbors. Hmm. Um, since we have already touched on the subject of uh, of gun crimes, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you are doing differently on that. Uh, the uh, technical term, I guess, is vertical prosecution, That's but right. uh, bottom line, it means a, a single or yeah. maybe a team. I don't know of uh, of uh, assistant state's attorneys take a case from beginning to end. That's right. So the way that prosecutions of um, homicide cases in, in Cook County have historically happened, we have a unit called our Felony Review Unit. Uh, the police or detectives will call in a case, and there would be an assistant state's attorney who reviews the case, determine whether charges are filed. Um, that attorney would then give the case over to a, a bond court attorney for, for the bond hearing. Uh, that file then goes to an arraignment attorney to, to prepare the case for arraignment. After arraignment, that file then goes to yet another attorney who then has the case for trial. Uh, and so that's a file that's touched four different people um, before we even get to to the trial phase. That's for a victim's family. That's four different faces uh, or names that they've heard um, for looking at the integrity of the evidence. It's, you know, the fourth person may say, well, why didn't we ask for this in the beginning or where this information seems suspect? Uh, it allows for us to have strength in our cases and make sure that instances or concerns regarding wrongful convictions or evidence that um, may not be sufficient are addressed. So having the same attorney who charges the case, tries the case, and sees the case through sentencing, we believe will lead to better outcomes, not just in terms of uh, conviction, but the relationship with law enforcement and victims. Um, is streamlining this... Uh, does it end up when you have one attorney take the whole thing through, does it end up costing more or less? You know, I don't know that we've costed out uh, the difference. I think what we were looking at in terms of the streamline, there are other jurisdictions that do this and, and across the board on, on all cases, mm -hmm. um, is the one, the outcomes are, are does, what's the strength mm -hmm. of the cases that we see? Um, and again, Cases that shouldn't be there that get are gotten rid of far earlier because the same set of eyes are, are looking at it. Um, and we also do some measure of this in juvenile court right now, uh, where the same attorney who files the case in juvenile court follows it all the way through. So we were able to measure, again, does it increase uh, court processing time um, mm -hmm. when you don't have to have someone relearn a case? Mm -hmm. um, does that make it more efficient? Um, are there dollars, you know, from a fiscal standpoint that are saved when we're able to more efficiently move cases through the system? Um, but we've not been able to cost that out yet. 
Okay, although from the description, it sounds like as if it could end up being uh, fiscally more sound than... Uh, yeah, in than, other uh, jurisdictions, uh, New York, for example, uses vertical prosecution in a number of their boroughs. Los Angeles uses vertical prosecution. Again, from an efficiency standpoint, from an accountability standpoint, you know, when we talk about wrongful convictions, um, you know, this helps with that. Where if you have someone who has... You know, we have a lot of cases that are coming back from, you know, false confessions. You know, the attorney who was there in the beginning is able to say there's something not right with this, with, mm-hmm. with how this information was gathered versus maybe someone who had a feeling, but they processed it through anyway. And then you're three attorneys in who don't who don't have the benefit of, of that proximity to what you saw in the beginning. And so from a fiscal standpoint, in the hopes that we wouldn't have um overturned cases or lawsuits that come as a result of that also cannot be costed out, but I think it would be significant. I want to turn to uh, another major uh, issue that you have to deal with, and that is the possibility and allegations of police police misconduct. Uh, Can you uh, sketch out for us what are the significant differences in the way your office is now handling allegations of police misconduct? You know, unfortunately, we've had to deal with um, issues involving officer-involved shootings uh, and deaths twice in my tenure. Uh, During my first month here, we had uh, a police officer, a Chicago police officer, who was charged with first-degree murder in an off-duty shooting. Um, One of the most significant differences was we had someone from our felony review unit out um, and our special prosecutions bureau out immediately um, as that case was being worked up. Uh, historically, you know, the Independent Police Review Authority um, handled uh, both the administrative uh, investigation and also led the criminal investigation. And we would receive that after they were done with their work. Uh, what we did was we started working concurrently, um, doing concurrent investigations with IPRA uh, during these investigations. Uh, and so what you saw was a profound difference um, in that in the case with the off-duty officer where it took us about 15 days to come to a conclusion that this was a case that we would charge. And you juxtapose that, for example, um, with the off-duty police officer a few years ago, where it took almost two years to come to a conclusion as to whether or not you were going to charge in that particular case. And then we had an on-duty police-involved shooting with an Amtrak officer about a month later, again, because we had our assistance and our resources out there immediately and not waiting to, to hear uh, we were able to, to ter- make a determination on charges in that case in nine days. So I think the biggest difference is is that we are not waiting uh, for the cases to come to us, that we're putting together teams to go out and investigate. And then even broader, talk about Springfield, we worked on legislation that will allow, in cases of officer-involved shootings, uh, to have a second look uh, at our determination as to whether or not charges should be filed, to have an independent set of eyes uh, to allay the concerns uh, that the state's attorney's office perhaps um, is in too close proximity to our law enforcement partners to make a determination about these types of cases. I absolutely believe that we can make these determinations. I've done that. Uh, but I believe that the public um, is entitled to that extra layer of uh, accountability and scrutiny in the work that we do. And uh, we have about a minute left. Uh, how th- that's on the public side on the side of the police officers, what can you do to maintain the confidence and the cooperation of the police officers who for some time now have felt as if 
um, some parts of government are, are coming after them. Yeah, I think what we've done is we've tried to maintain a constant communication with our law enforcement partners, sharing with them the data and information that we have. So often police would do their work and then we'd do our work, but we wouldn't talk about what the outcomes were. Uh, so we have been committed to making sure that our bureau chiefs and department heads are sharing what's happening with the work that we're doing. And then also just making sure that we're mindful that accountability um, and public safety, they're not mutually ex- exclusive. Um, the men and women who dedicate themselves to law enforcement pay a tremendous price and sacrifice for the work that they do. And we want to make sure that that accountability keeps them safe as well. But the conversation and the narrative has to change that it's an, an us against them proposition, that reform and accountability um, has a great and tremendous benefit to all. And that's going to be our final word. Kim Fox, thank you very much for spending the half hour with us. And it went like the wind. It really did. Yeah. We'll, <laughs> so don't be a stranger. We'll have to have you come back soon. Uh, to our listeners, if you would like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website. That is cbschicago.com. Just follow the audio links. You can also find our podcasts on play.it. I will be back next week with another edition of that issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.